Chapter One of The Nebulae Coat by John Mead Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter One. Cullern Wharf of the Ordnance Maps, or plain Cullern as known to the countryside, lies two miles from the coast today, but it was once much nearer and figures in history as a seaport of repute, having sent six ships to fight the Armada and four to withstand the Dutch a century later. But in fullness of time the estuary of the Carl silted up, and a bar formed at the harbour mouth, so that seaborne commerce was driven to seek other havens. Then the Carl narrowed its channel, and instead of spreading itself out prodigally as heretofore on this side or on that, shrunk to the limits of a well-ordered stream, and this none of the greatest. The burghers, seeing that their livelihood in the port was gone, reflected that they might yet save something by reclaiming the salt marshes and built a stone dyke to keep the sea from getting in, with a sluice in the midst of it to let the cull out. Thus were formed the low-lying meadows called Cullern Flat, where the freemen have a right to pasture sheep, and where, as good-tasting mutton is bred, on any pre-sally on the other side of the channel. But the sea has not given up its rights without a struggle, for with a south-east wind and spring-tide the waves beat sometimes over the top of the dyke, and sometimes the cull forgets its good behaviour, and after heavy rainfalls inland, breaks all bonds, as in the days of yore. Then anyone looking out from upper windows in Cullern town would think the little place had moved back once more to the seaboard, for the meadows are under water, and the line of the dyke is scarcely broad enough to make a division in the view between the inland lake and the open sea beyond. The main line of the Great Southern Railway passes seven miles to the north of this derelict port, and converse with the outer world was kept up for many years by carriers' carts, which journeyed to and fro between the town and the wayside station of Cullern Road. But by and by deputations of the Corporation of Cullern, properly introduced by Sir Joseph Carew, the talented and widely respected member for that ancient borough, persuaded the railway company that better communication was needed, and a branch line was made, on which the surface was scarcely less primitive than that of the carriers in the past. The novelty of the railway had not altogether worn off at the time when the restorations of the church were entrusted to Messrs. Farquhar and Farquhar, and the arrival of the trains was still attended by Cullern loungers as a daily ceremonial. But the afternoon on which Westray came was so very wet that there were no spectators. He had taken a third-class ticket from London to Cullern Road to spare his pocket, and a first-class ticket from the junction to Cullern to support the dignity of his firm but this forethought was wasted, for except certain broken-down railway officials who were drafted to Cullern as to an asylum, there were no witnesses of his advent. He was glad to learn that the enterprise of the Blandema Arms led that family and commercial hotel to send an omnibus to meet all trains, and he availed himself the more willingly of this conveyance, because he found that it would set him down at the very door of the church itself. So he put himself and his modest luggage inside, and there was ample room to do this, for he was the only passenger, plunged his feet into the straw which covered the floor, and endured for ten minutes such a shaking and rattling as only an omnibus moving over cobblestones can produce. With the plans of Colour and Minster, Mr. Westray was thoroughly familiar, but the reality was as yet unknown to him, and when the omnibus lumbered into the market-place, he could not suppress an exclamation as he first caught sight of the great church of St. Sepulchre shutting in the whole south side of the square. The drenching rain had cleared the streets of passengers, 
save for some peeping toms who looked over the low green blinds as the omnibus passed. The place might indeed have been waiting for Lady Godiva's progress. All was so deserted. The heavy sheets of rain in the air, the misty water-dust raised by the drops as they struck the roofs, and the vapour steaming from the earth, drew over everything a veil invisible yet visible, which softened outlines like the gorse curtain in a theatre. Through it loomed the minster, larger and far more mysteriously impressive than Westray had in any moods imagined. A moment later the omnibus drew up before an iron gate, from which a flagged pathway led through the churchyard to the north porch. The conductor opened the carriage door. "'It is the church, sir,' he said, somewhat superfluously. "'If you get out here, I'll drive you back to the hotel.' Westray fixed his hat firmly on his head, turned up the collar of his coat, and made a dash through the rain for the door. Deeper puddles had formed in the warm places of the gravestones that paved the alley, and he splashed himself in his hurry before he reached the shelter of the porch. He pulled aside the hanging leather mattress that covered a wicket in the great door, and found himself inside the church. It was not yet four o'clock, but the day was so overcast that dusk was already falling in the building. A little group of men who had been talking in the choir turned round at the sound of the opening door, and made towards the architect. The protagonist was a clergyman past middle age, who wore a stock, and stepped forward to greet the young architect. Uh, "'Sir George Farquhar's assistant, I presume. One of Sir George Farquhar's assistants, I should perhaps say, for no doubt Sir George has more than one assistant in carrying out his many and very professional duties.' Westray made a motion of assent, and the clergyman went on. "'Let me introduce myself as Canon Parkin. You will no doubt have heard of me from Sir George, with whom I, as rector of this church, have had exceptional opportunities of associating.' On one occasion, indeed, Sir George spent the night under my own roof, and I must say that I think any young man should be proud of studying under an architect of such distinguished ability. I should be able to explain to you very briefly the main views which Sir George has conceived with regard to the restoration, but in the meantime let me make you known to my worthy parishioners and friends, he added in a tone which implied some doubt as to whether condescension was not being stretched too far in qualifying as friends persons so manifestly inferior. This is Mr. Sharnell, the organist, who under my direction presides over the musical portion of our services, and this is Dr. Enifer, our excellent local practitioner, and this is Mr. Jolliffe, who, though engaged in trade, finds time as churchwarden to assist me in the supervision of the sacred edifice. The doctor and the organist gave effect to the presentation by a nod, and something like a shrug of the shoulders which deprecated the rector's conceited pomposity, and implied that if such an exceedingly unlikely contingency as their making friends with Mr. Westray should ever happen, it would certainly not be due to any introduction of Pecan and Parkin. Mr. Jolliffe, on the other hand, seemed fully to recognise the dignity to which he was called by being numbered among the rector's friends, and with a gracious bow and a polite, "'Your servant, sir,' made it plain that he understood how to condescend in his turn, and was prepared to extend his full protection to a young and struggling architect. Beside these leading actors, there were present the clerk and a handful of walking gentlemen in the shape of idlers who had strolled in from the street, and who were glad enough to find shelter from the rain, and an afternoon's entertainment gratuitously provided. "'I thought you would like to meet me here,' said the rector, "'so that I might point out to you at once the more salient features of the building.' 
Sir George Farquhar, on the occasion of his last visit, was pleased to compliment me on the lucidity of the explanations which I ventured to offer. There seemed to be no immediate way of escape. Sir Westray resigned himself to the inevitable, and the little group moved up the nave, enveloped in an atmosphere of its own, of which wet overcoats and umbrellas were resolvable constituents. The air in the church was raw and cold, and a smell of sodden matting drew Westray's attention to the fact that the roofs were not watertight, and that there were pools of rainwater on the floor in many places. "'The nave is the oldest part,' said the cicerone, "'built about 1135 by Walter Lebec. "'I am very much afraid our friend is too young and inexperienced for the work here. "'What do you think?' he put in as a rapid aside to the doctor. "'Oh, I dare say, if we take him in hand and coach him a little, he'll do all right.' "'replied the doctor, raising his eyebrows for the organist's delectation. "'Yes, this is all Lebec's work,' the rector went on, turning back to Westry. "'So sublime the simplicity of the Norman style, is it not? "'The nave arcades will repay your close attention, "'and look at these wonderful arches in the crossing. "'A Norman, of course, but how light, "'and yet strong as a rock to bear the enormous weight of the tower "'which later builders reared on them. "'Wonderful, wonderful!' Westray recalled his chief's doubts about the tower, and, looking up into the lantern, saw on the north side a seam of old brick filling, and on the south a thin, jagged fissure that ran down from the sill of the lantern window like the impress of a lightning flash. There came into his head an old architectural saw, The arch never sleeps, and as he looked up at the four wide and finely drawn semicircles, they seemed to say, The arch never sleeps, never sleeps. They are bound on us a burden too heavy to be borne. We are shifting it. The arch never sleeps. Wonderful, wonderful, the rector still murmured. Daring fellows, these Norman builders. Yes, yes, Westray was constrained to say, but they never reckoned that the present tower would be piled upon their arches. What, do you think them a little shaky? put in the organist. Well, I have fancied so many a time myself. Oh, I don't know. I dare say they will last our time. Westray answered in a nonchalant and reassuring tone, for he remembered that, as regards the tower, he had been specially cautioned to let sleeping dogs lie. But he thought of the ossa heaped on Pelion above their heads, and conceived a mistrust of the wide crossing arches which he never was able entirely to shake off. "'No, no, my young friend,' said the rector, with a smile of forbearance for so mistaken an idea. "'Do not alarm yourself about these arches. Mr. Rector,' said Sir George to me the very first time we were here together. You've been at Cologne forty years. Have you ever observed any signs of movement in the tower? Sir George, I said, will you wait for your fees until my tower tumbles down? <laughs> he saw the joke, and we never heard anything more about the tower. Sir George has no doubt given you all proper instructions, but as I had had the privilege of previously showing him the church, you must forgive me if I should step into the south transept for a moment— while I point out to you what Sir George considered the most pressing matter. They moved into the transept, but the doctor managed to button her westray for a moment en route. "'You'll be bored to death,' he said, with this man's ignorance and conceit. "'Don't pay the least attention to him. But there is one thing I want to take the first opportunity of pressing on you. Whatever is done or not done, however limited the funds may be, let us at least have a sanitary floor. You must have all these stones up and put a foot or two of concrete under them. Can anything be more monstrous than that the dead should be allowed to poison the living? There must be hundreds of burials close under the floor, and look at the pools of water standing about. Can anything, I say, be more insanitary?' 
They were in the south transept, and the rector had duly pointed out the dilapidations of the roof, which in turn wanted but little showing. "'Some call this the Blandenair Isle,' he said, "'from a noble family of that name who have for many years been buried here.' "'Their vaults are no doubt in a most insanitary condition,' interpolated the doctor. "'These Blandemeers ought to restore the whole place,' the organist said bitterly. "'They would if they had any sense of decency. "'They're as rich as Croesus and would miss pounds less than most people would miss pennies. "'Not that I believe in any of this sanitary talk. "'Things have gone on well enough as they are.' "'and if you go digging up the floors, "'you will only dig up pestilences. "'Keep the fabric together, "'make the roofs watertight, "'and spend a hundred or two on the organ. "'That is all we want. "'And these Blandemeers would do it "'if they weren't curmudgeons and skinflints.' Uh, "'You will forgive me, Mr. Charnel,' said the rector, "'if I remark that an hereditary peerage "'is so important an institution "'that we should be very careful "'how we criticise any members of it. "'At the same time,' he went on, "'turning apologetically to Westry. "'There is perhaps a modicum of reason in our friend's remarks. "'I had hoped that Lord Blandemer would have contributed handsomely to the Restoration Fund, "'but he has not hitherto done so, "'though I dare say that his continued absence abroad accounts for some delay. "'He only succeeded his grandfather last year, "'and the late Lord never showed much interest in this place, "'and was indeed in many ways a very strange character. "'But it's no use raking up these stories.' "'The old man is gone, and we must hope for better things from the young one.' "'I don't know why you call him young,' said the doctor. "'He's young, maybe, compared to his grandfather, who died at eighty-five. "'But he must be forty if he's a day.' "'No, impossible. And yet I don't know. "'It was in my first year at Cologne that his father and mother were ground. "'You remember that, Mr. Charnel, when the Corisandi upset in Pallion Bay?' "'Aye, I mind that well enough,' struck in the clerk. "'And I mind their being married.' "'because we were ringing of the bells "'when old Mason Palmiter runs into the church and says, "'Do auntie, boys, do auntie ring em any more. "'These year old tile never stand it. "'I see him rock,' he says, "'and the dust a-running out of the cracks like rain.' "'So out we come, and glad enough to stop it too, "'because there was a feast down in the meadows by the London Road, "'and drinks and dancing, and we wanted to be there. "'That were two and forty years ago, come Lady Day, "'and there were some shook their heads "'and said we never ought to have stopped the ring.' "'for a broken peel broke life or happiness. "'But what was we to do?' "'Did they strengthen the tower afterwards?' Westray asked. "'Do you find any excessive motion when the peel is rung now?' "'Lord bless you, sir, them bells were never rung for thirty years afore that, "'and wouldn't have been rung then. "'Only Tom Leach, he says, "'The ropes is there, boys, let's have a ring out of this year tower. "'He ain't been rung for thirty year. "'None of us don't recollect for the last time he was rung. "'And if he were weak then?' "'as I had plenty of time to get strong again, "'and there'd be half a crown a man for ringing of appeal. "'So up we got to it, till old Palmer to come in to stop us. "'And you take my word for it, they never have been rung since. "'There's only that rope there.' "'And he pointed to a bell-rope that came down from the lantern far above "'and was fastened back against the wall. "'What we told the bell with for its service, "'and that ain't the big bell neither.' "'Did Sir George Farquhar know all this?' Westray asked the rector.' "'No, sir, Sir George did not know it,' said the rector, with some tartness in his voice, "'because it was not material that he should know. "'And Sir George's time when he was here was taken up with more pressing matters. "'I never heard this old wife's tale myself till the present moment. "'And although it is true that we do not ring the bells, "'this is on account of the supposed weakness of the cage in which they were swung, "'and had nothing whatever to do with the tower itself. "'You may take my word for that.' "'Sir George, 
I said, when Sir George asked me. Sir George, I have been here for forty years, and if you do agree not to ask for your fees till my tower tumbles down, why, I shall be very glad. <laughs> How Sir George enjoyed that joke! <laughs> Westray turned away, with a firm resolve to report to headquarters the story of the interrupted peal, and to make an early examination of the tower on his own behalf. The clerk was nettled that the rector should treat his story with such scant respect, but he saw that the others were listening with interest, and he went on. "'Well, it ain't for I to say the old towers are going to fall, and I hope Sir George won't ever live to laugh the wrong side of his mouth. But stopping of a ring never brought luck with it yet, and it brought no luck to my lord. First he lost his dear son and his son's wife in Cullen Bay, and I remember as if twas yesterday how we grappled for them all night, and found their bodies lying close together on the sand in three fathoms, when the tide set in shore in the morning. And then he fell out with me lady, and she never spoke to him again. No, not to the day of her death. They lived at Fording. That's the great hall over there, he said to Westray, jerking his thumb towards the east, for twenty years in separate wings, like you might say, each in a house to themselves. And then he fell out with Mr. Fines, his grandson, and turned him out of house and lands, though he couldn't leave them anywhere else when he died. Tis Mr. Fines as is the young lord now, and half his life he's been a wanderer in foreign parts, and isn't come home yet. Maybe he never will come back. It's like enough he got killed out there, or he'd be tied to answer Parsons' letters, wouldn't he, Mr. Charnel? he said, turning abruptly to the organist with a wink, which was meant to retaliate for the slight that the rector had put on his stories. Uh, come, come, we've had enough of these tales, said the rector. Your listeners are getting tired. The man's in love with his own voice, he added in a lower tone, as he took Westray by the arm. When he's once set off, there's no stopping him. There are still a good many points which Sir George and I discussed, and on which I shall hope to give you our conclusions. But we shall have to finish our inspection to-morrow, for this talkative fellow has sadly interrupted us. It is a great pity the light is falling so fast just now. There is some good painted glass in this end window of the transept. Westray looked up, and saw the great window at the end of the transept shimmering with a dull lustre, light only in comparison with the shadows that were falling inside the church. It was an insertion of perpendicular date, reaching from wall to wall, and almost from roof to roof. Its vast breadth, parcelled out into eleven lights, and the infinite division of the stonework in the head, impressed the imagination. While mullions and traceries stood out in such inky contrast against the daylight yet lingering outside, that the architect read the scheme of subarcuation and the tracery as easily as if he had been studying a plan. Sundown had brought no gleam to lift the pall of the dying day, but the monotonous grey of the sky was still sufficiently light to enable a practised eye to make out that the head of the window was filled with a broken medley of ancient glass, where translucent blues and yellows and reds mingled like the harmony of an old patchwork quilt. Of the lower divisions of the window, those at the sides had no colour to clothe their nakedness and remained in ghostly whiteness, but the three middle lights were filled with strong browns and purples of the seventeenth century. Here and there in the rich colour were introduced medallions, representing apparently scriptural scenes, and at the top of each light, under the cusping, was a coat of arms. The head of the middle division formed the centre of the whole scheme, and seemed to represent a shield of silver-white crossed by waving sea-green bars. Westray's attention was attracted by the unusual colouring, and by the transparency of the glass, which shone as with some innate radiance where all was dim. He turned almost unconsciously to ask whose arms were thus represented, but the rector had left him for a minute, and he heard an irritating ha-ha-ha at some distance down the nave, 
that convinced him that the story of Sir George Farquhar and the postponed fees was being retold in the dusk to a new victim. Someone, however, had evidently read the architect's thoughts, for a sharp voice said, "'That is the coat of the Blandainers, Barry Nebulae of Six, Argent Vert.' It was the organist who stood near him in the deepening shadows. "'I forgot that such jargon probably conveys no meaning to you, and indeed I am no heraldry myself, excepting only this one coat of arms. And sometimes wish,' he said with a sigh, "'that I knew nothing of that either. There have been queer tales told of that shield.' and maybe there are queerer yet to be told. It has been stamped for good or evil on this church, and on this town, for centuries, and every tavern loafer will talk to you about the nebulae coat, as if it was a thing he wore. You will be familiar enough with it before you have been a week at Cullerne. There was in the voice something of melancholy, and an earnestness that the occasion scarcely warranted. It produced a curious effect on Westry, and led him to look closely at the organist but it was too dark to read any emotion in his companion's face, and at this moment the rector rejoined them. "'Now what? Ah, uh, yes, the nebulae coat. Nebulae, you know, from the Latin nebulum, uh, nebulus, I should say, a cloud, referring to the wavy outline of the bars, which are supposed to represent cumulus clouds. Well, well it is too dark to pursue our studies further this evening, but to-morrow I can accompany you the whole day, and shall be able to tell you much that will interest you.' Westray was not sorry that the darkness had put a stop to further investigations. The air in the church grew every moment more clammy and chill, and he was tired, hungry, and very cold. He was anxious, if possible, to find lodgings at once, and so avoid the expense of an hotel, for his salary was modest, and Farquhar and Farquhar were not more liberal than other firms in the travelling allowances which they granted their subordinates. He asked if anyone could tell him of suitable rooms. "'I am sorry,' the rector said, "'not to be able to offer you the hospitality of my own house, "'but the indisposition of my wife, unfortunately, makes that impossible. "'I have naturally but a very slight acquaintance with lodging-houses or lodging-house-keepers, "'but Mr. Charnel, I dare say, may be able to give you some advice. "'Perhaps there may be a spare room in the house where Mr. Charnel lodges. "'I think your landlady is a relation of our worthy friend Jolliffe, is she not, Mr. Charnel? "'And no doubt herself a most worthy woman.' "'Pardon, Mr. Rector,' said the churchwarden, in as offended a tone as he dared to employ in addressing so superior a dignitary. "'Pardon, no relation at all, I assure you. Her namesake, or at the nearest a very distant connection, of whom I speak with all Christian forbearance, my branch of the family hath no cause to be proud.' The organist had scowled when the rector was proposing Westray as a fellow-lodger, but Jolly's disclaimer of the landlady seemed to pique him. "'If no branch of your family brings you more discredit than my landlady, "'you may hold your head high enough. "'And if all the pork you sell is as good as her lodgings, "'your business will thrive. "'Come along,' he said, taking Westray by the arm. "'I have no wife to be indisposed, "'so I can offer you the hospitality of my house, "'and we will stop at Mr. Jolliffe's shop on our way "'and buy a pound of sausages for tea.'" End of chapter 1